0: In those days, a decree went out from Caesar, and so everyone went to their town to be registered. Joseph went up from Nazareth to the city of Bethlehem along with Mary, and when they were there, it came time for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the field at night and keeping watch over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David a Savior was born, for you who is the Messiah, the Lord,
1: All right. Morning, Riverview. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving this past Thursday with loved ones. And let me be the first to say, happy hot chocolate Sunday. Yeah. You know, I think this could be an official holiday um, in our church because there is just a buzz this morning when people saw the hot chocolate out in the lobby. But uh, no, we hope you enjoy that. Last week, we started a new series here at Riverview, a Christmas series where we are looking at the various names and titles of Jesus uh, given throughout the Christmas narrative. And last Sunday, uh, we spent time not in a traditional Christmas passage, but we were in John chapter 1 because we were looking at Jesus as the Son of God. And as we did that first, we, we saw many aspects of his deity. John began his gospel account with how Jesus is and has always been eternal. That Jesus was the incarnate word, that all things were created through him, that in him was life, and how that life was the light of men. But the verse that most resonated with the Christmas story that we are familiar with was John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Christmas story celebrates this truth that God entered the world and that he lived amongst those that he had created. On that winter night in Bethlehem, God arrived in creation as a baby born to human parents. And this belief, this aspect of the Christmas story, it is essential to our lives as followers of Jesus. Compared to other prominent religions, the truth of the incarnation, that God entered the world as a human being, it is a core foundational belief that we hold that is actually exclusive to Christianity. And it's a truth that is so important. That if you lose it, then you lose Christianity altogether. You don't have our faith without the truth that we are looking at today. While John's gospel began by showing us that Jesus truly is the Son of God, this morning we're going to see in another gospel account how Jesus was and is at the same time the Son of Man. And as we see this truth throughout the scripture this morning, we're also going to spend time looking at why it matters so much for us in our faith today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be jumping around the scriptures today, uh, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, so it's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. Your Bible is an Old Testament, which was the scriptures before Jesus was in the world um, as a human being, and then the New Testament is after that. And, and this is the first gospel account. It was written by Matthew, and who, like John last week, was also one of the disciples. So this is a firsthand account. But Matthew's gospel begins much differently than John did. While John was really broad and focused on the macro, the big picture, Matthew gets into the weeds right away of Jesus's family line. We see this starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where it says this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. Okay, we're going to stop the genealogy there. But the first lines of books or accounts are always really important because with the first words, you can kind of see what the author is trying to communicate and the foundation that they're laying to do so. Last week, the first three words of John's gospel account were in the beginning because he took us back to the book of Genesis and because his goal was to show how Jesus was eternal, right? How he was everlasting, how he was the light of the world, the son of God. But Matthew chooses to begin his gospel differently with a list of 45 unique names, many of which are very difficult to pronounce. So kudos to Shauna for crushing it this morning. But the first lines of the gospel account are this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So the question for us today is why would Matthew do this? Why would he start his account with a list of names? Because genealogies are not the most interesting thing to read. (laughs) right? Especially for us modern readers. If you've ever done a Bible reading plan or whenever you get to this section of scripture, you usually skim it or you skip it altogether because the names are really hard to read and they don't really mean much to us if we don't do a deeper dive into who the actual people were. But Matthew was really intentional in doing this this way because his goal was to show how Jesus was a human being. And how he was the fulfillment of what the Old Testament said about a Messiah coming to rescue his people. It's really helpful for us to know who Matthew's primary audience was. It was to Jews who knew what the Old Testament scriptures said. So what Matthew was doing is he was going back to the Old Testament to show how all these prophecies that God had given his people throughout the centuries, they had all led up to Jesus. By going into the family line, he's communicating that at the same time, Jesus was both fully divine and fully human. Even though we often skip these lists of names in the scriptures, it's really important for us that they're there because they are a record of history. These are real people who existed in real time. Earlier this year, I was given a gift by my Aunt Alice, uh, me and my siblings. We were given this folder, and it was actually a genealogy of the maternal side of our family. And it was, it was pictures, and it was records of family members that I had never even seen before. I didn't even know. I had seen pictures of people in my family from the 1800s. And as I flipped through this folder, I was just blown away. Because I saw pictures of my great-great-grandparents. I learned who they were where they lived, what they cared about, the struggles and the victories that they had. And what happened, this was one of the most profound and powerful gifts I've ever gotten. (laughs) Because I not only had a greater understanding of my family, but my love for my family grew as well. Because I knew them more deeply. See, that's what genealogies do. They help show us history, real people who lived and experiences that they had. And when we look at the, at the genealogy in, the, in Matthew, we actually see some names we may recognize if you've read some of the Old Testament. First, we see the name Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, he was this man that God had chosen to, to bless and make a covenant with. God said that he would bless him with land and descendants and blessing, and nothing about Abraham warranted this choice. Okay, people didn't turn in their resumes to God and say, all right, pick me. It was just out of nowhere that God said, Abraham, I am going to pick you. It was only through God's generosity and his grace that he chose him to bring about a nation of people, to to bring about a savior into the world. And the rest of the book of Genesis is about this family. We see other names like Isaac and Jacob and Judah. But then generations later, we see other names we may recognize. Names like Rahab and Boaz and Ruth, if you were with us this past summer, We did a series here called Testify. You can find all these messages online. Uh, But what we did was we looked at faith stories of prominent men and women in the Bible. And two of the stories we looked at were these women. We looked at Rahab and we looked at Ruth. Rahab was a Canaanite woman that protected the Jewish spies that snuck into Jericho back in the book of Joshua. This is Joshua chapter 2 through Joshua 6. And because of her faith, she and her family were spared and and they lived amongst the Jews after this. And and as this happened, Rahab actually married a Jewish man and had a son named Boaz. Boaz shows up in the book of Ruth. He marries Ruth and redeems her after she has just a really difficult life and a lot of grief going on. But then the genealogy continues to show that Ruth is the grandmother of King David. Both Rahab and Ruth are remembered in the scriptures for their great faith amidst harrowing life circumstances. We could spend all day in this genealogy. We're not going to do that. Because all throughout this list, though, there is an amazing legacy. A legacy of ordinary people that God chose to work through in history. And it was through this family line that Jesus would enter the world as the Son of Man. We see that Son of Man title show up in other places. And more in the Old Testament, it's used in a general sense. Like a human being, if you're, if you're a man, you're a son of, of man, or if you're a woman, you're a daughter of man, right? It can be in a general sense. But Jesus would refer to himself as the son of man. This was actually his favorite way to talk about himself um, in the scriptures. While other people would refer to Jesus as the Christ or, or the Messiah uh, when they were like recognizing him and said, Jesus called himself son of man more than anything else. It shows up 80 times in the New Testament. Over 30 times it showed up in the Gospel of Matthew alone. And, as this t- and this title, it would have resonated with the original readers of Matthew because they would have heard it before. Or they would have read it and think thought, where, where have I seen that? Does that ever happen to you? You hear a line from a movie, right, or a song lyric, or you hear a name and you know you've heard it before, but you can't quite place it. When that happens to me, it it bothers me. (laughs) So I have to look it up on my phone. But before we had smartphones, like it would just stay in my brain. But then it would come to me hours later, right? I would be like talking with someone and I'd be like, Tom Hanks! (laughs) And they'd be like, what? You know, because like a normal person, they had moved on. Uh, But for me, my brain doesn't work like that. It gets stuck, right? With meaningless information. Um, But for the readers of Matthew's gospel— They would have read Son of Man over 30 times, and they wouldn't have actually wondered where it was from. They would have known right away. Because one of their prophets had a vision hundreds of years earlier that used that exact title for someone who would come in the future. This prophet was named Daniel. As a teenager, Daniel was was a Jewish man enslaved along with his people by the enemy nation of Babylon, You can read all about this in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And this happened about 600 years before Jesus was born. And while Daniel was in service to this enemy king, he had this terrifying vision. And in this vision, there were these four massive beasts that came out of the sea. And these beasts, they represented these evil human kingdoms that would come to exist. But but in the middle of this vision, a person shows up on the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man. Look at what Daniel saw in his vision. This is Daniel 7, verse 13. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So in this vision, This terrifying vision. Daniel sees a human being appear out of the sky. But this man is different than other people. He approached the Ancient of Days, God the Father, with boldness. This man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Every people, nation, and language would serve him, and his kingdom would be everlasting. This prophetic vision would have been known to first-century Jewish people, because it was part of their scriptures. Daniel was a well-known figure in their history. This was something they were looking forward to, a son of man coming. So as Jesus would use this title for himself, he would be communicating the truth of who he was. It was him. They, he was the person they were waiting for. But not everyone believed that, Unfortunately. But as we open the Scripture and we look at the life Jesus lived in the Gospels, we see that even though he was the Son of God, he truly was a Son of Man, the Son of Man. He experienced humanity like all of us do. He experienced the highs, the lows, the hardships, the joys. And this is actually a great encouragement to us, that the God of the universe can relate to us. First, as a son of man, we see that Jesus entered the world like every other human being. He entered like a human—he entered as a human baby. We see this in Luke chapter 2. This is one of the two Christmas accounts we have in the New Testament. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. We saw this in Matthew chapter 1. But he did this to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This is the picture, right, that we have of the Christmas story. And it's really crazy if you think about it, to think that Jesus, the eternal and powerful Son of God, he entered into creation in this way. Because while babies, they are amazing gifts, and they are miracles of new life. At the same time, they are also completely helpless. Right? They're needy. They they cannot meet any needs that they have in and of themselves. They are completely dependent upon their parents to take care of them and to provide them for what they need. And while all this was, tr- while this is true of all of us, when we were babies, it was true of Jesus as well. One of my favorite songs we sing at Riv captures this well. It's the song "In Christ Alone." And there's a line in that song that says this, In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God, in helpless babe. Jesus entered the world like us. As the Son of Man, we also see that Jesus was like us, and that he experienced human limitations. That although he was fully divine, he was also fully human in the challenges he faced. Specifically, we see in Scripture, in his suffering— but also in his temptations. Hebrews chapter 2 captures this well. The book of Hebrews paints this picture very well for us. But chapter 2, verse 10. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, we saw that in John chapter 1, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father, Let's jump down to verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and his sisters in every way, So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for since for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. Here we see that Jesus becoming like us in our humanity as the Son of Man, that he experienced temptation early on in his ministry. Jesus was led out into the wilderness uh, by the Spirit for 40 days and for 40 nights, and Jesus fasted. And, And after he had fasted and he was hungry, the devil showed up and he tempted him. And he tempted him in multiple ways. He tempted him with food, right? A physical need. He tempted him to test God. He tempted him with power and authority over all the kingdoms of the world in that moment. And every time Jesus fought the temptation in the same way, Scripture... He went back to the words of God and said, no, I'm not giving in to that. He continued to trust his heavenly father. Along with being tempted, we also see that Jesus was a man of suffering. If you read through the gospel accounts, you see Jesus suffered a lot. He suffered relationally. Jesus experienced betrayal by those in his life. One of the 12 disciples he spent years of his time with chose to turn his back on him and turn him over to the authorities. Jesus also suffered physically. He went through the most intense and physical violence that existed in his time and his culture. Finally, we see that Jesus also suffered spiritually. On the cross, as he went through that physical pain, he bore the weight, the spiritual weight of our sin on top of that. We see the Apostle Paul share this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says that God, meaning he, made Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Even though that is a glorious reason and and promise to us, it came through suffering that Jesus experienced. Along with that, as the Son of Man, Jesus was like us and that he was often misunderstood. When people looked at Jesus and the life that he lived, who he spent time with, he was maligned. He was misrepresented. We see this in Matthew chapter 11 as he's describing how unresponsive the people were in their um, acceptance of him. Look at what he said, Matthew 11. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you notice the title that he used there? The son of man. This is one of the many times he referred to himself in that way. But what was happening when he was just living his life was the religious leaders would see the people that Jesus spent time with. And they called him a glutton. And they called him a drunkard. Because the people Jesus spent time with, the religious leaders would not even go close to. They wouldn't go close to them because they wanted to remain pure. They didn't want to uh, get in the way of their obedience to the law. But when it came to the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus didn't withdraw. He engaged. He went into their homes. He went to their parties. He ate with them. To eat with people in this first century time and culture, it was a sign of friendship, it was a statement of fellowship. And Jesus did this with those who were often rejected in his community. And what happened was people misunderstood him and rejected him. Finally, as the Son of Man, Jesus was like us and that he experienced grief. In our Riv community last week, we just spent time we, we, we recognized that, you know, the holiday season can be one that brings forth grief in us. You know while many of us are celebrating Christmas and it's a good time, many of us it's it's a season of loss, and so we were thinking about that, and, and we looked and we just tried to we tried to remember all the times in Scripture that we could of when Jesus experienced grief, and we just kept coming up with them. When G, in John eleven, when when Jesus is with his friends who are mourning the loss of their friend or their brother Lazarus, and, and Jesus just wept, he wept at how despairing and broken the people were around him at at. at loss, of the loss of life. Or when Jesus entered into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and people are cheering, and he's just weeping because the truth of who he was was hidden from them. They thought he was an earthly king coming to free them now, but he was more than that, and he wept. Or when Jesus experienced separation from God the Father for the first time, On the cross, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's grief, deep sorrow that Jesus experienced. Because Jesus was and is the Son of Man. We see that he was like us, that he experienced humanity in the same ways that we do. He came from a line of people that were flawed and sinful. Like we are. He was born to human parents. He encountered the hardships of being human. Things like suffering and temptation, grief, sorrow, being misunderstood. As we look at these passages and, and we 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 see all these things about Jesus and his humanity, we actually just shouldn't just leave here thinking, that's really interesting. We we need to take that and we need to put it front and center. Why does this matter for us? How should I apply this? How does knowing Jesus as the Son of Man, why does that impact my life any differently today than any other day? Well, there's a lot of ways we can apply this to our lives, but there's two I have for us today. One of them is a truth we should cherish, and the second is an action that we should take. The first truth is this. Because Jesus was and is the Son of Man, that means... Jesus understands you. The God of the universe knows what it's like to be human because he became like us in our humanity. Have you ever had someone say to you, I know what you're going through? It's a powerful thing. A few weeks ago, I was sick. I had shingles, uh, which was really unfortunate. Uh, Pastor James came to the Westside venue and he preached in my absence and and a lot of other people stepped up, which I was so grateful for. But I was so grateful for the many prayers of of many of you, uh, the messages that I got. But some of the messages said, hey, I have had shingles before. I know what you're going through. And while I was really thankful for all the messages and the well wishes, like those ones encouraged me differently because I would just reply with, I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, it's not fun. You know that, Right. But there was a shared experience. They understood. And while having the same life experiences, it's not a prerequisite to care for people or to be there or be present. It is a uniquely powerful thing because they know, they understand you. In all the difficulties that we go through in our human lives, Jesus can actually say this to us. I know what you are going through. Jesus can sympathize with you in your suffering, in your pain. Human suffering is one of the the worst challenges we ever encounter in our lives. A recent study showed how human suffering, it's one of the top reasons why followers of Jesus doubt their faith or why they experience doubt, those those questions that linger on. Like, because of my suffering, God, God, is he really good? Is God there at all? If he is, why isn't he doing anything? We ask those questions in suffering, and they cause us to doubt. Jesus gets it. In his deity, he did not keep himself from the difficult aspects of being human. He fully embraced them. And because that's true, he modeled for us what it looks like to suffer well, to suffer with a deep dependence upon his heavenly Father. Jesus can sympathize with you in your suffering. Jesus also understands you in your temptations to sin. Hebrews 2.18 tells us that because Jesus was tempted in every way, he's able to help us in our temptation. One of the greatest lies the devil wants to convince you of in your Christian life is that you are alone in your temptation and in your fight against sin. That your temptations are worse than what others experience. That no one would understand you. Because when you begin to believe that, instead of pursuing God, being known by him, and and, and confessing, you isolate. And you keep yourself from other people. Jesus knows your struggle. More than you would ever be able to communicate to him. And even with that knowledge he has of your temptations, of your sins, he will not let go of you. If you are a Christian, you are his, and he's promised to keep you in his hand forever. Jesus understands you and your temptations to sin. Jesus also understands you when you're misunderstood by others. As a Christian, there's going to be ways that you live your life that are different than the world around you. You're going to spend your time differently. You're going to have relationships with people that others may question. You're going to steward your money and your resources for the glory of God instead of yourself. And in doing that, people aren't going to get it. They're going to be like, why are you doing that? Even members of your own family who don't share your faith, they may not get you. Jesus gets you. He understands what it means to be misunderstood. And He will encourage you. And He will bring you joy in that. You know why? Because you look more like Him than the world around you. Jesus understands when you're misunderstood. Finally, Jesus understands you in the grief that you experience. Grief is not a sign of unbelief, it's not a lack of faith. It's not a sin to be repented of. And we know this because the one who was without sin, Jesus himself, grieved. He was a man of sorrows. So as you process loss, as you grieve, as you walk through difficult seasons, you can do so knowing that God knows. He knows what you need more than you do. And not only does he know, but he's a good father who will provide you with what you need. Cherish this truth today that you are understood by the God of the universe in your humanity in what you experience in the past and what you will experience in the future. But we're not just gonna sit and cherish that truth. That truth should lead us to doing something, an action that we should take. Because Jesus is the son of man and he understands us in our humanity, we should draw near to him. Approach him with boldness whenever it is needed. We see this encouragement in the book of Hebrews, chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Or in light of that, or because that is true, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The picture I have in my head of this verse is when a a child runs up to their mom or their dad when they're hurt. And this happens a lot in our house. Uh, We've got two young boys. But in that moment... That child isn't going back and forth in their their mind about whether or not they should find mom or dad. They're not asking the question, does dad have time for me? Is mom busy? Am I interrupting? Am I going to be in trouble? No. Instead, they boldly approach. They run to their mom or dad. Not only because their mom or dad can help them, but because they want to. That's their safe place. What if we approached Jesus like that? In the times of our life when we need help, when we're tempted, when we're suffering, when we're lost, when we're grieving, when we don't know what to do, what if we approached the throne of grace with boldness, fully expecting to receive mercy and grace in our time of need? We don't have to wonder if that's what we're going to get. It's promised. This is available to us because of the work Jesus has done through the gospel, he made a way for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Over and over again in the gospels, this is what Jesus said. This is what he came to do as the son of man. Look at some of the times Jesus mentioned himself as the son of man in Luke chapter 19 this is what Jesus said to a a sinner who had turned to him in repentance this is the story of Zacchaeus Jesus said this today salvation has come to this house Jesus told him because he too is a son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and save the lost every single one of us when we come into this world as sons and daughters we're spiritually lost in our sin. Our relationship with God is fractured. Due to our sin nature. And it cannot be repaired. By our own righteous works or deeds. It can only be repaired. By being found. By coming to Jesus in faith. In Mark chapter 10. Jesus said something similar to his disciples. And he said this to them. After they had been debating out Which one of them were the greatest disciple. They were missing it. And Jesus said this in Mark 10 verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came. To give his life as a ransom for us. And he would do so when he would take the sins of the world onto himself and die on a cross. His life would pay the sinful debt that we owed. Finally, right before Jesus was crucified... He was asked explicitly, are you the Messiah? And this is how he answered. He answered the high priest. Mark 14, verse 62, he said, I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. As Jesus answered the high priest who was about to sentence him to death, He not only affirmed the truth of who he was, but do you know how he did so? With the prophecy. That's Daniel chapter 7. The high priest would have known what Jesus was saying. And we see this in the next verse. the, The high priest, he tears his robes. That's the last thing he needs to hear. You know why? Because Jesus is saying, it's me. I am the one you've been waiting for. I'm the one from the vision. It's me. This is who Jesus is. The son of man. The one we celebrate every single Christmas. The one who entered the world like us. Who experienced humanity like us. The highs, the lows. The hardships and the joys. The one who entered the world to make a way for us to know God and be known by him. Because that is true, cherish the truth that God understands you in your humanity. Let that draw you toward him today. But not only that, let that truth encourage you to approach him boldly in every time of need that you have. Because when you do so, you will receive mercy and grace in abundance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you sent us a Savior. God, as we sing the songs and as we open the scriptures, we are just in awe of your plan to do that. God, I take so much encouragement in knowing that Jesus understands us in our humanity. God, there's been times in my life where I have just been so encouraged by another person who said, I know what you're going through. And Jesus can say that to us in our lives. Father, we're so grateful for Christmas. That you entered in. You came near. Lord, as we sing the songs, as we open the scriptures, let us cherish those truths. That while Jesus was the son of God, he is the son of God, he also is the son of man. He was human. Lord, we thank you. We cherish that truth. And Lord, I just pray that you help us cherish that truth but also have it lead us to approaching you in our times of need. Instead of isolating and keeping ourselves away from you, Lord, but to run to you like a child running to their mom or dad. To approach you boldly, expecting to receive mercy and grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.